is here. I wanted to put up on the screen some images of some people that were kind of having a bad day. Um, the first one is a picture of a guy who mounted that TV crooked. And when I looked this up, the guy said, I didn't mount it crooked, my ceiling is crooked. <laughs> Literally, that's what he said. And then I found someone who was having an even worse day. Uh, he had some big problems with his TV mount. Yeah. <laughs> so the crooked ceiling was nothing compared to this one. Uh, there was also an image of someone who had gotten too much sun. And I know you guys know what that feels like when you're out there and you didn't put the sunscreen on and maybe it's overcast and you don't realize how burned you're getting. Well, I think this next girl had no clue. <laughs> I hope she was eating ice cream or something good because... <laughs> She's going to have a bad week after that. <laughs> also, a picture of a car in a snowstorm. They forgot to roll their windows up. Yeah, and then the next one, this is a true story that I read about. They accidentally discovered this car underneath the snow, and when they discovered it, there was a woman in there. <laughs> yeah. And she had been in there, they said, for four to six hours, and she claimed that she fell asleep <laughs> and had no idea that her car was covered in snow. I, I think the police said, we feel like there might be something fishy here. <laughs> now, the next one is somebody who's gonna have a bad hair day. You know those days when the water gets on your hair or the snow gets on your hair? But this is a real incident in the next one of a woman who had a very bad hair day because a porcupine <laughs> fell from a tree and put 300 needles into her scalp. Yes, doctors had to remove those. 300 needles. <laughs> You can Google it. There's a whole news story that goes with it. And then, you know, those days that you don't realize that the tide's coming up when you're at the beach, and the next thing you know, your towel's gone, and, you know, your sunscreen's floating away. Well, don't park too close to the beach. <laughs> this was a real news story of people who didn't realize the tide was going to come up when they parked right next to the ocean. So these people had bad days and bad weeks. Uh, what about a bad year though? Or even a bad decade? A bad decade, you know, we've all experienced tough times and we will all experience tough times. And when we do, we wanna just give up or throw in the towel. But we're gonna see through our first chapter of Ruth that God is calling us to be loyal, to be faithful women. And as we jump into this first chapter tonight, we're gonna see how to be loyal women. We're gonna see how to be women who demonstrate a pattern of consistent faithfulness, who aren't women who run away when things get hard, who aren't women who throw in the towel when things get tough. So let's begin by opening our Bibles to the book of Ruth. 
It's in your program, if you didn't bring a Bible. You can pull it up on your phone or whatever it is that you use, but we're gonna study this book all weekend. We're gonna get to know this text, and we're gonna begin again with the first chapter of Ruth. So I'm gonna just read the whole chapter to you to begin, and then we're gonna go back and look at it. So let's begin in Ruth chapter one, verse one. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. They lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May Yahweh do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and Yahweh has brought me back empty. 
Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So the first verse here, it really sets the stage for the whole book. Uh, It tells us what's going on. It was the days when the judges ruled. The days when the judges ruled and there was a famine in the land. It reveals to us that there are two big problems here. Uh, The first problem is it was the days when the judges ruled and that was a dark time for Israel. That was the time when the text repeated to us in the book of Judges that every man did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. There was really no following or allegiance to Yahweh. People did what they wanted to do and there was widespread sin and corruption even in the land of Israel. And the second problem is that there was a famine. There was no bread. There was no food to be found. And that was the result of living in a fallen world. Uh, Genesis 3.17, when Adam was cursed for disobeying God, God said, you know, cursed is the ground. Your punishment is that the ground will be cursed because of you and thorns and thistles it will produce and you will work by the sweat of your brow. So there was problems due to the sin of humanity and problems just due to living in a fallen world. Right from the beginning, the very first verse, the author, the narrator sets us up to realize that this life is hard, that this life is difficult, difficult due to people's sin and difficult due to living in a fallen world. So the first point is expect a life of difficulty. We see that right from the beginning, that we are to expect a life of difficulty. Now, Elimelech and Naomi and their sons Kilion and Maklon, they said, you know what, there's no bread here, so we're going to leave. We're out of here. And it's funny because the name Elimelech, it means my God is king. It means my God is king and it's ironic because Elimelech decided to flee because there was no bread in Israel. He wasn't really trusting in his God as king. And then Bethlehem, the the name Bethlehem, it means house of bread. And it's ironic because there's no food or no bread in the house of bread. And then Naomi, Naomi means pleasant or pleasant one. And we're going to see how ironic that is as well. But they went down to Moab and they settled in. And although they escaped famine, Elimelech walked right in to death. Death for himself and death for his two sons as well. So that we see Naomi was left. She was left without her husband and she was left without both of her sons. And to top that off, she had no heirs. Uh, The text says that these boys were married to their wives, Orpah and Ruth, for 10 years, and they had no children. She had no heirs. So she had no husband, she had no sons, and she had no heirs. They were destined for a life of poverty. 
There was no one that was gonna take care of them or provide for them. Uh, there was just nothing left for them. They were looking upon a horizon of ruin and destitution. And you know, we need to expect tough times in this life as well. Not only because of uh, living with the consequences of people's sin, again, living in a fallen world, but Jesus even told us that if we're aligned with him, if we're followers of him, that we are to expect tribulation because we live in a world that is opposed to our God, is opposed to the gospel, and is opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we don't expect difficulty, what will happen is when it comes, we're gonna be caught off guard. And we're not to be caught off guard. If we do expect it, we can learn to respond rightly to it when it comes and not act like some strange thing is happening to us that we don't understand or we can't perceive or we can't fathom why this would be occurring. We're just to expect a life of difficulty. We see that in the book of James. I'm sure you're all familiar with this text in James 1, verses two through four, where it says, count it all joy. Joy, what does joy mean? Something great, something worth rejoicing over. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When you hit difficulty, if you expect it, you can count it all joy when you meet trials. For you know, this is why you can count it all joy, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." You know what that text is telling us? Count it all joy when you hit difficulty in life because difficulty builds character. Difficulty makes you a stronger person. Difficulty creates a completion in you that you need in this life. And so we shouldn't resist and run from difficulty but we should count it all joy when it comes, knowing that it's there to mature us and to reveal what's in us and help us to be more like the person God wants us to be. God uses it not only to mature us, but to mature our loved ones as well. And you know, uh, as married women or as wives, even as sisters or daughters, we don't like seeing the ones that we love going through difficulty. But we don't wanna be the ones who are keeping them from Christian character because difficulty builds character. I remember this specifically um, when my daughter Hannah, that you saw in the picture up there, was in eighth grade. When she was in eighth grade, she went from a life of homeschooling to a school that was about 20 miles from our house. And she really wanted to go to this school. It was a great school. It was an awesome opportunity for her to be there. But it happened to be a school that was pretty uh, liberal in ideology. It was an art school. And when she was there for a few weeks, eighth grade, 
going from homeschool, backpack from room to room in the house to 20 miles away, uh, she had a birthday party and decided to invite all sorts of kids from school. So she invited the kids from school over. We were all out in our yard. They were having a great time and conversations got rolling and the kids learned that uh, Hannah and her family didn't believe or that God approves of homosexuality. And that was not fun after that. Uh, there was a lot of intense conversation taking place. There was a lot of shock and awe. How could you not think that homosexuality is okay? I mean, Hannah's in eighth grade. I mean, again, I've homeschooled her the whole time, like the girl in the bubble, right? And the next thing you know, she's out there by the fireplace with all these friends who are upset and enraged because they've discovered that we don't believe that God approves of homosexuality. Well, we were able to talk to the kids and you know things settled down and they ended up all being very cordial and kind and we're friends with some of them still to this day. So these are great people, but they just have a different way of thinking. When she went to school on Monday, and the school was actually seventh grade through 12th grade. So she was in eighth grade and she would walk the halls with 12th graders. And she told me that that day uh, there were 12th graders coming up to her, you know, these giant 12th graders, and she's this tiny eighth grader with a peanut butter sandwich coming up to her going, Oh, so you're the one who hates homosexuals? Yeah, and she told me that. And, you know, when I heard that right away, I thought, we're done. You know, let's get her out of there. We got a great room in the house. We can do school here. <laughs> let's go back to what it should be, right? And uh, I sent out an email to some of my friends and said, you got to pray for Hannah. I got to get her out of this place. I mean, this is not looking good. And I remember very well being in Irvine Spectrum with her at Urban Outfitters saying, Hannah, I'm praying with my friends I don't want you to see you suffer like this. I really think that you need to pull out of there. And she looked at me and said, Mom, I'm getting to talk to people about Jesus. Who cares if they don't like me? Isn't that what I came here for? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> You know, but that built character. And yeah, there were lots of times that people gave her a hard time. You know, there were lots of times that she didn't even get invited to the parties or, you know, put on the list or whatever it was. But it built character. It made her stronger. It made her decide who she was. Was she going to follow Jesus or was she going to be buffeted around by the winds and doctrines of the world? And, you know, we got to think, think to ourselves right now. If we're moms, or if we're married, if we have parents, if we have sisters, are we hindering the spiritual growth of those people by not allowing difficulty in their life? Or are we saying, you know what, we're not going to run from difficulty. As Christians, we're going to expect a life of difficulty, and we're going to allow it to build the character in us that God wants and God designs. And if we expect this, we're not going to run, we're not going to flee, we're not going to reject loyalty when the cost is high. Well, the text then transitions away from Elimelech and his sons Machlon and Kilion and 
transitions over to Naomi because she's now the head of the household. She's the head of the house here. It says in Ruth 1, 6, and 7, then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Naomi, the head of the household, she has learned that the house of bread has been restocked, right? There's food in the land of Israel. Yahweh, the name of the covenant God there, he had not forgotten his people. He had allowed them to go through difficulty, but he had not abandoned or forgotten them. And food was back again. And even through all the difficulty and all the hardship, God graciously allowed Naomi to hear that there was food back home. The second point is acknowledge God's provision. Even in the face of great difficulty, I know that you can all say that God has yet provided for you. Even in the hardship, even in the troubles, even in the tough times, God continues to provide for us. And he provided Ruth with knowledge of bread back, or back home and Naomi. I love what uh, one theologian, his name is Dale Ralph Davis. I love what he says about this. And I actually read about this in his judge's commentary. But uh, he said, you know, do you, take out your trash at home. Maybe your kids take your trash out for you or maybe your husband takes out the trash. He said, do you realize that trash or garbage in itself is a sign of God's provision? He said, potato peelings, apple cores, squash seeds are silent witnesses that our father is feeding us. Garbage shouldn't be a tedious detail, but a divine blessing. And he said, we can miss that because it's so routine. He said, maybe our problem is we're not thinking theologically about the garbage. I bet we all had garbage this week, right? What a reminder to us that God is providing for us. Maybe it doesn't look the way that we want it to, but he is providing for us, even in the troubles, even in the difficulties. If we have dishes to wash, it means that we had food to eat. If we have laundry to wash, it means that we had clothes to wear, and probably a lot of them, right? If we have bills, it means that we had things to pay for. Let's not miss the great provision of God in our life continually, even in the little things, even in the small things on a day-to-day -day basis. I think that's why uh, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8, Paul teaching Timothy said, godliness with contentment is great gain. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. If you did dishes and laundry this week, 
you need to be content because God is providing for you. Are you dissatisfied about what you don't have? Nagging and complaining? Do you nag your husband even subtly because he doesn't make enough money? Or talk to him about how much the other guy's making or her husband made? Are you angry about how much he spends? It's not good. That's wrong. If you have food on the table and clothes to wear, you are to be content because you have enough. We have enough. We need to be continually aware of God's merciful provision in our life because when we acknowledge his provision, it keeps us from running when things are tough. It helps us to become loyal women who hang in there even in the difficulty. Now, verses six and seven, it says that uh, Naomi arose, that she returned, and that she and her daughters-in-law went to return. Uh, this word return, the Hebrew shub, it's used 12 times in these 22 verses. There's this theme of returning, returning, returning that we're gonna see here. So Naomi was going to return home. But from her perspective, why would her daughter-in-laws go with her? There was no point in them going with her from her perspective because there would be nothing in Bethlehem for them. Why would they wanna go there with her? Their husbands were dead. Look at what Naomi says in Ruth 1, 8, and 9. She says to her daughter-in-laws, go return that shub, each one of you, to her mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And then she said in verse 13, are you going to wait till my sons are grown? No, for it's bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. She's acknowledging to her daughters-in-law that Yahweh is against me. The hand of God is against me. There is no point in you returning with me. That God is sovereign, he's in control, but he is against me. And as a Jewish woman, even in the face of all this difficulty, even though she's not dealing with it, right? She is acknowledging that Yahweh is in control. So that's the third point here, is agree that God is in control. Agree that God is in control. She said to Orpah and to Ruth, go home. Go back to your own moms. Get a job. Get a future. Get a husband. Make a life for yourself. May God deal kindly with you. God has the ability to deal kindly with you because he is in control. May he show you the same grace, the same hesed kindness that you have shown to my sons and to me because he has the ability to do that. Now again, his hand is against me, but not against you. So go home, leave, go to your family, get remarried, get a life. Again, may God be gracious to you the way that you have been to me. She was ready to be left totally alone. Remember, she lost her husband, she lost her two sons, and now she was ready to lose her daughter-in-laws and go back with nothing, 
totally ready to have nothing. She knew that God was in control, but she was ready to throw in the towel, just give up, just walk away. If only she knew what we know in the New Testament. If only she knew the promise of a verse like Romans 8:28. If only she knew that we know, as the text says, we know that for those who love God, for me and for you, the promise is for us who love God, all things, even these things, Naomi, all things work together for good for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God works everything together for good. The text says we know that. We might have to stop for a second and ask ourselves, do we know that? Do we know that right now? Do we really know that? That all things work together for God's glory and our good if we love him. Imagine if the room were cleared out right now. What if the room were cleared out and you were the only one in here? And Jesus came to you. And Jesus said, listen, I know what you're going through. I know how hard it is. I know what you're suffering through. I know the pain. I know the discomfort. I know the tears that you cry at night. But I want to promise you this, that even this is working for my glory and for your good. If he were to come in here and look you in the eyes and promise you that, how would you feel? How would you feel if he were to say, even this is working for my glory and for your good? And if that would make you feel a sense of relief, if it would make you feel free to love him and worship him and follow him and serve him, then that's exactly how it should make you feel because he has promised you that. He's promised you through the scriptures that all things work together for good if you love him and you're called according to his purpose. He is in control and he is working every single thing out. And in the end, he will be glorified and he will use it for our good. If we take him at his word like this, this is gonna help us to be loyal. We're not gonna run when things get tough. We're not gonna freak out and implode and crumble when things don't go our way. We're gonna be able to say, God's got this. He's in control, he knows what he's doing. He's got a purpose and he's got a plan even in these things. And Naomi, she realized that God was in control, but she didn't respond to that knowledge rightly. When she returned to Bethlehem, look in verse 20. In verse 20, she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The Almighty, that's should I in the Hebrew? Should I? He is the causer of all my troubles, the one who is in control. And she complained to Orpah, she complained to Ruth, she complained to the women of Bethlehem. But we don't see her talking to God about it. We don't see her turning to God and talking to God 
about her struggles, about her pain, about her sorrow. We don't see her talking to God as she should have. And that's the fourth point. Talk to God about your troubles. We've got to talk to God about our troubles. If we're going to agree that God is in control, that he can do whatever he wants to do, we can't be convinced that he's going to be against us. As she said there, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter is what Mara means. She said, because God has marred me, right? God has been against me. We don't see her pouring her heart out to him in prayer, asking him for help, trusting in his promises to his people and to her. I mean, think about someone like Job. We all know the account of Job and all that God allowed to happen in Job's life. Job heard that all of his livestock was taken and then his servants, they were all killed. And then he heard that his children were killed. And we know in Job 1, 22, 21 and 22, Job's first response was, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. Yahweh gave and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. But you know, even Job began to wear down. And by chapter three, verse one, chapter three, verse one, it says Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He couldn't take it anymore. And he said, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. This deep pain, this deep sorrow, these deep burdens. We see Naomi with all of these problems. We see Job with exceeding problems. We see these people being worn down. What should they do? What should Job have done? What should Naomi do? What should we do? When we're in that place of just quiet desperation, we need to talk to God about our troubles. We need to talk to God. We see this continually in the Psalms. We see in the Psalms, Psalms that are called lament Psalms. In fact, of the 150 Psalms, one third of them, 50 of the 150, one third of them are lament Psalms where the author is talking to God about his troubles and his problems and pouring his heart out before the Lord. These lament psalms teach us how to talk to God, how to turn to the Lord, how to pour out just our burdens before him, how to talk to him about our sorrows, how to ask him for help, and then how to trust in his sovereign goodness and in his character. One lament psalm that wraps this up real tightly is Psalm 13, where we see this taking place. The author here pouring his heart out before God, turning to the Lord. 
and then asking God for help and then trusting in God, trusting in God's character, leaving with a trust knowing that God will keep his promises. In Psalm 13, it begins, how long, O Lord, how long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? It's been a long time, he's worn down. Are you going to forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Just worn down, broken, tired. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Asking God these questions, pouring his heart out before the Lord. God, I'm weary, I'm tired. How long? How much longer are you going to allow this to occur? And then asking God for help in verses three and four, consider and answer me, O Yahweh my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And then trusting in God's character, knowing that God had heard that his heart was poured out, that he had asked God for help and saying, I can now trust in the promise. I can trust in the character of the Lord, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to Yahweh because he has dealt bountifully with me. Wow, beginning with that how long, how long will this go on for? And closing with the Lord. He is a God of promise and he has dealt bountifully with me. There's a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by Mark Rogop, and he deals with exactly this thing. He explores this whole concept of lament in the Old Testament, the book of Lamentations, and throughout the Psalms, and he points out that there are these four different parts of lament where you turn to God, you turn to him in prayer, you talk to him about your troubles, you complain to him, he says, you pour out what's on your heart, you let God know what's troubling you and burdening you and got you down, and then you ask him for help, and finally, you trust in his character, you trust in his truth. You humbly come before him and you look at his truth in light of your tears and you trust in him. You trust in him and in his promises. And again, we see this continually throughout the Old Testament. And that's what Naomi didn't do. She complained. Again, she complained to her daughters-in-law. She complained to the people in the city, but she didn't pour her heart out before the Lord, asking him for help and trusting in his character. And you know, even Jesus, even Jesus poured his heart out before God like this. Remember in Matthew 27, 46, it says at the ninth hour when Jesus was there on the cross, he literally lamented. He cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting word for word, the beginning of Psalm 22, which is a psalm of lament where the author pours his heart out before the Lord and then wraps it up by trusting in God. If you're hurting, 
If there's an area where you're hurting and you're stuffing down that pain, or you're trying to keep moving despite that pain, I would just challenge you this weekend to take the time to really draw closer to God, not only through the study of his word, but by pouring your heart out in prayer before him by literally lamenting before him, by humbly just pouring your troubles out before him with that humble and broken heart. He already knows what you're going through and how you're feeling. But this process is a process that's designed to help us to connect with him and then ask him for help and then find our strength in him, knowing that he hears and that we can trust him to work even these things together for good. And if you don't have anything in your life to lament right now, find somebody who does and pray together with her. Join together with her and help her to pour her heart out before the Lord and just call upon him for help and then trust in him and his character. And as we know, as we learn that God hears us when we cry out to him, when we pour our heart out to him, it strengthens us. It helps us to become loyal women, women who know that God's promises prevail, that his truth supersedes even our tears. Well, what about Ruth? We haven't even mentioned Ruth yet. Well, let's look at her really quickly. It says in Ruth 1, 10 through 12, they, the daughters-in-law, said to Naomi, no, we will return with you to your people. So both of the daughters-in-law said, no, Naomi, we're gonna stick with you. But then in verse 11, Naomi again said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back that shub, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, saying, turn back, don't do this. And Ruth says in verse 14, they lifted their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And we see the words that we read. Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. She's made a good choice, my daughter. Return, return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May Yahweh do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she was speechless, right? She said no more. There was nothing more that she could say. And so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And the whole town said, is this Naomi? Again, Naomi trying to reason with Ruth. Why in the world would you go with me to Bethlehem? 
you know, this whole thing of will I bear sons? What did she mean by that? You know, am I gonna bear sons? Are you gonna wait for me to have kids so that you can marry them? What she meant by that is, Ruth, you're a Moabite and nobody there is gonna marry you. You're a foreigner. You don't belong. If you come back with me, you're not gonna get a husband. You're gonna be alone, just like me. You're not gonna have anything, any provision whatsoever. I'm a widow, I'm past childbearing age. If Naomi was 20 when she had her kids and then they were 20 when they got married and they were married for 10 years, she was at least 50. So she was probably about 50 years old saying, not gonna happen, girls. I'm not gonna have kids for you to marry. So if you go back to Bethlehem with me, plan on a life of nothing, a life of being absolutely alone. And Orpah said, I think I got it. <laughs> I'm gonna go back. I, I, you know, I love you, Naomi, and I wanna stay with you and support you, but a life of nothing? I'll go back, I see what you're saying here. And four times she pressured Ruth. She put that pressure on Ruth, your sister, your, my other daughter-in-law, she's gone back. She's returned to her people. She's returned to her gods. Go with her. That return, Shub, go, go out of here, get. But Ruth would not be pressured to return. She stayed the course no matter what the cost. And the fifth point here is stay on track to the end. Stay on track to the very end. Remember Ruth in that final response, stop, don't urge me to leave you. Don't urge me to return. Wherever you go, that's where I'm gonna go. Wherever you lodge, that's where I'm gonna lodge. Your people are gonna be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I'm gonna die there. And that's where I will be buried. And may I make an oath before Yahweh, if anything would keep me from doing what I've said. And you know, it probably wouldn't be a women's retreat in an Old Testament book if we didn't throw out a chiasm. So a really fast chiasm in this statement. Now, if you guys were here last year, we spent a while on this, but remember those chiasms, these literary devices, are designed by the authors, by the narrators, to show us where the main focal point is in the text. And we can see in Ruth's great statement here, she says, don't urge me to leave you or turn from following you, and then a parallel statement in the bottom, may the Lord do so to me, and more, if anything but death parts me from you. So don't urge me to leave you, I'm not going to leave you. And that's like the, the bread of the sandwich, right? The top slice of the bread and the bottom slice of the bread. Then we get to the cheese layer. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will go. And then in the, the one second up from the bottom, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Parallel statements, these are done specifically by the author to draw our attention to the key. And then we go to the meat of the statement. We've got Ruth there saying, your people shall be my people and your God will be my God. Naomi, this, this, or Ruth, this woman from Moab who's gone through so much pain and suffering, 
saying your God will be my God. And that is the focus of this entire statement. And the author wants us to see that this is radical. It is a radical statement of self-sacrifice that Ruth is making here. She's abandoning every single base of security that any woman would have had in that culture. She's abandoning her homeland. She's abandoning her people. She's abandoning her childhood gods. And she makes this oath. At the bottom, may Yahweh himself do more to me and more so if I don't keep my word to you. And you know what? Scholars say this makes no sense. Why would she do this? Why would Ruth be so dedicated to Yahweh here? I mean, Naomi, she was financially ruined, right? She had no money, nothing to offer Ruth as far as, you know, financial sustenance. Naomi was bitter. She was not pleasant. She was a very bitter and embittered woman. And she told Ruth, if you come to Bethlehem, you're gonna face ethnic rejection. You're a Moabite woman. You don't belong with the people of Bethlehem. There were no promises from God. But Ruth, she wanted to follow that God. And that's what she said. I want to follow Yahweh even though it will cost me everything. I am ready to follow God. I am ready to follow Yahweh. And she does. The name Ruth means refreshment there. She gave up everything. How refreshing in the midst of this dark first chapter to see Ruth, refreshment, making this kind of statement. And you know, as you think about this, have you ever heard people saying, you know, I was a Christian, but those people at Compass were so rude. Or, you know, those people were unfriendly to me. They didn't hang out with me. They made me feel bad. You know, they didn't come up to me and show me the love that I needed. Uh, you know, people are all hypocrites. I mean, they're all just a bunch of liars. They're one way here and one way there, and that's why I'm not following God anymore. Really? How do you think Ruth would have heard that? She had no reason to follow Yahweh except for the fact that he was God and she knew it. And we can see from this that if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, nothing is gonna keep you from him. No hypocrites, no lack of friends, no lack of a good time when you go to church. If you're a follower of Jesus, you will follow Jesus to the end. And we can see that in her. We cannot blame people and we cannot blame circumstances for our inability to walk uprightly before God. If we're not walking rightly before God, that is our choice and our responsibility. Let's never be found blaming somebody else or another circumstance or our church because of our lack of desire to do what God has called us to do. 
She said, not only am I gonna stay with you until you die, but even after you die, that is where I'm going to stay. She said, where you die, that's where I'm gonna die. I'm not leaving even after you're gone. This is a decision that I am making for life. I am staying the course to the end. I am going to be a loyal woman who no matter what the cost, no matter what it takes, no matter what sacrifice I have to give, I will follow God's plan to the end. And I just have to ask you, where's God calling you to remain loyal? Is it in your marriage? Is it in church and your relationship with your church? Is it to your friends? Maybe family members, extended family members, maybe even your Christian faith. Maybe you're even feeling like, I don't know if I'm into this anymore. You know what, let Ruth be an example to us. No way. It doesn't matter if we have nothing to look forward to. Christ alone is enough. He's enough to keep us going. And if we are in Christ, we will follow him to the end. No matter what kind of pressure we receive to go back, to return, to stop. Ruth was a loyal woman. And you know what? Naomi did not deserve this kind of a daughter-in-law. She didn't deserve this kind of commitment. Listen to what Naomi said again as she returns. She goes back and verse 21 says, I went away full and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So she returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. I came back empty as Ruth standing there right by her side. That must have felt good. <laughs> and then she says, God here is testifying against me. Yahweh has testified against me. Literally, he's bearing witness against me. Did she make bad choices? Probably. Uh, was it right for them to leave Bethlehem and go to Moab because there was no bread? Some would say, well, you know, that's what Abraham did and that's what Jacob did, but they were called by God to do that. It probably wasn't right for them to leave their people and go to a foreign nation for bread. Was it right for her sons to marry Moabite women? Some would say only the Canaanites were forbidden but most would say, no, the Moabites were clearly forbidden as well. They were forbidden from entering into the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation, the scripture said. So, you know, you've got Naomi thinking, it's my fault. I was wrong, this is my fault, and it was. It was probably her fault, and yet, even though it was probably her fault, God was still gracious to her. God still gave her far more than she deserved. She had Ruth by her side and she had the Lord. She had far more than she deserved. And that's the last point here, is admit that you have more than you deserve. You do, we all do. 
we have more than we deserve. If we got what we deserve, we would be eternally separated from God. That's what we deserve. That's what we've earned. If we got what was fair, we'd be shut out from his presence forever. We'd have no ability to call out to him or rely on him or trust in his promises. If any of us got what we deserve just for this week of life alone, it would be enough to sentence us to eternal judgment. Naomi got far more than she deserved. And yet in her own eyes, she still called herself empty. She was ready to bail out. You know, when we realize that we have far more than we deserve, when we really realize what we deserve, when we realize we have so much more than what we've earned, it keeps us from bailing out when times get tough. It keeps us from longing after and yearning after and craving for more and more and more. The loyal woman, she realizes that she has more than she deserves and that she's a loyal woman because God has been loyal to her. Uh, you guys all know who Oprah Winfrey is. Did you know that Oprah Winfrey was actually named Orpa at birth? That on her birth certificate, it says Orpa? Uh, she was named by her aunt after Orpa in our text in Ruth chapter one. And the problem was that her family members couldn't pronounce it. And instead of Orpah, they kept saying Oprah. And as time went on, the name Oprah stuck. You know, Orpah, it's not really a remembered name, is it? You don't hear a lot of Orpahs. And the narrator wasn't actually critical of her. I mean, he said that she did exhibit this hesed kindness towards her husband and towards Naomi. But she went back. And because she went back, in a sense, she was forgotten. Well, what about Ruth? That's a name we all know. We all know the name Ruth and we can all pronounce it, right? It's a common name. It's been remembered for centuries. It's rightfully praised as the name of a godly woman. Why? Because Ruth didn't turn back even when there was no reason on earth to keep on going. She didn't turn back. She was a loyal woman. Let's take this weekend to choose to all be like Ruth, to be loyal women who don't turn back, even though it might cost us everything. Let's follow God's plan all the way to the end. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for these women who you have sovereignly drawn here to be together this weekend. God, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would please help us, God, to never forget that this life just includes difficulty. I pray, God, that we would be so grateful for all that you've provided us with, realizing that we have far more than we deserve. I pray, God, that we would understand that you're in control and that you promise us that even the pain, the sorrow, the hardship, the suffering, that you work it all together 
not only for your glory, but for our good as well, Lord. I pray, God, that we would talk to you about our troubles, that we would pour our hearts out before you, that we would ask you for help, Lord God, and that we would be met with strength and courage as we trust in your promises and we set our tears aside and cling to the truth of your word. God, please help us all to be loyal women, women who stay on track to the very end, even if it costs us everything. God, may we be found faithful, just as our Lord Jesus has been faithful to us. And we pray in his name, amen.